at the start of the week and plenty of great radio from the day, from ageing well to dancing with the stars and the Kerry baby story. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. We have control of 80% of our ageing. Yeah. Right. Our, our genes are only <laughs> responsible for 20%. Why did you feel like coming back to a nightclub tonight? Just for the atmosphere, just to be around people and just to kind of make the most of having a bunch of people in one space we haven't had, obviously, for a long time. But they still persisted and they tried to put forward this theory of super fecundation, which is that she was the mother of both babies fathered by different men. Yeah, now that is bizarre. And we'll start here on Today with Claire Byrne, How to Age Well. Professor Roseanne Kenny was talking about her new book, Age Proof, The New Science of Living a Longer and Healthier Life. Now, you say that a lot of people don't want to think about or talk about uh, getting older, but it's going to happen to all of us. In your experience, when are people ready to talk about ageing? I mean, the, what one, one has to say that the earlier you start to think about it in a positive way, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and research would show that the ageing changes in cells start as early as our 20s, probably earlier, but they're, they're apparent in our 20s. Yeah, and, and now, for, for most of us, we're going to live long, hopefully healthy lives and it's about optimising that so that when you are 75, 80, 85, you still have a fulfilled life. That's right and I, I, I firmly believe that the over 50s now are a completely new cohort. Our world has never before experienced the high numbers of people in that older, well 50 and above age group. Mm-hmm. I'm well there myself. Um, but, and, and, and that demographic is going to get bigger and bigger and be more vocal, more educated, have more disposable income, etc. So, so it's almost like there's a new cohort that we as clinicians need to uh, change our practice to accommodate, that individuals need to be aware of their own health status and therefore apply new behaviours to have a an independent and really good, healthy, older um, period of time in the latter years and that society needs to reflect on. This is different. This is new. So is this about people in their 30s, 40s and 50s changing their lifestyle so that they can look forward to a later life? Or can any, is it ever too late to start? So it's never too late to start. But the earlier you start, without a doubt, the better. Um, Elderly, the word elderly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we use it in, in the media. And sometimes I cringe at it because as you grow a little bit older yourself, you realise, well, I know people in their 70s now who I wouldn't describe as elderly because the word has connotations. What are the words we should be using for people who are uh, advancing in years? So there have been, there's been work around this and, and the preferred option is older. Um, and elderly was actually one of the least preferred <laughs> terms. But I, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, I had an 84-year-old patient who, was, who came in with a chest infection but was very insistent that she be discharged as soon as possible because she was responsible for care of her elderly neighbour. And it transpired that her neighbour was 14 years her junior, but she referred to her neighbour as elderly, although in no way did she consider herself to be that when I I discussed it with Mm -hmm. her. So, yeah, so I think that uh, older is fine. Elderly has negative connotations. And when you ask people who become older how they would like to be referred to, it's as older. And you see this in real time, okay? You see somebody who is 84, like the woman that you mentioned Mm -hmm. there, who's full of vigour, full of life. But you might have a 
another 84-year-old whose life experience at that point is completely different. And what's interesting about that, Claire, is we have control of 80% of our ageing. Yeah? Right. Our, our genes are only <laughs> responsible for 20%. So everything through our lifespan that, that we've covered in the book, even enjoyable things like friendship, laughter, purpose, creativity, as well as, of course, diet and the different exercise programmes, etc., all of those factors influence how we age. We can control that. So Rose spoke about the kind of diet we should all be adopting. Uh, I think th- th- there's a whole lot out there about diet and it's incredibly confusing. But no, no matter how much work we look at, time and time again, it comes back to the constituents of the Mediterranean diet. And I think for individuals, that's the easiest thing to remember, the Mediterranean diet. And that's very simply loads of fruit, vegetables, nuts and, of course, fish with chicken and much less red meat. And the other sort of dietary rule that's easy to apply to that, again, appears to be the case for long-lived communities who live healthily, etc., is low sugar, low salt and no processed foods. Mm-hmm. So, so the processed foods in particular are really bad for our microbiome and more and more we're discovering the important role of the microbiome in healthy ageing. So they're the kind of, that's what I would say is a helicopter view of a good diet. Yeah, and it's simple enough really, really when you simple. put it like that. Yeah, it is. Alcohol. Talk to me about alcohol and well, ageing. Well, well, I mean, alcohol in moderation, Okay. Nobody, nobody can fault alcohol in moderation. Um, and some of the, for example, I've mentioned, I've spoken about the blue zones, the long-lived zones. And in order to de-stress downtime, um, the Sardinians do employ alcohol. So every, every afternoon, Sardinians will meet their friends and share and engage, etc., with lots of laughter and two to three glasses of red wine. So, you know, there's quite a, Quite a good um, science now behind red wine. They're probably not big carafes of wine like we sometimes <laughs> see. You know how the, you yeah. see a, a glass of red wine yeah. in that part of the world? Yeah. It's tiny yes. in comparison yes. to what we do. Yes, big, it huge is. Huge things. It is, but it lasts them the two hours that they're engaging. And the social engagement part of that is really important. So with respect to alcohol, I would say to listeners, don't drink alone ever. If you're, if you're going to have a drink, have it with friends. Um, and then you're getting the benefit of both of those behaviours, which we know are very good at a cellular level. Yes, and, and being in a community and having friendships, that's hugely important as well. Isn't that amazing? Um, and when this was first discovered, you know, geneticists, etc. said that can't possibly be the case. But we now know this to be the case. Lots of systematic reviews have shown actually that quality friendships regularly being regularly exposed to quality friendships is as good for your health as not smoking, not drinking excessively or not taking or taking lots of physical activity. That's how potent it is. And here's a surprising idea. We're closer to worms, are we, than we might think? Yes, absolutely. And, and an, an awful lot of the work that we do are actually on, on worms and the housefly, Drosophila. I mean, we, we share a huge uh, a number of genes with those species, which, which we can study in terms of, of ageing and also with other mammals, you know, monkeys, etc., rhesus monkeys in particular. Some of the early caloric restriction work was done on rhesus monkeys. Um, and and it's, it's very um, credible to actually take the scientific learnings from animals and apply them to humans. Mm-hmm. So uh, you just touched again on the restricted eating, caloric restrictions. Yeah. Are you talking about reducing the amount you eat or reducing the time window that you eat in? 
Individuals need to actually identify which of those processes works best for them. One that I think is not too difficult, and there's huge science behind it, reducing diabetes, obesity and heart disease, is the 16-hour fast. Now, you might think, oh, I can't fast for 16 sure, hours. Sure, sleep for most of it. That's of the anyway. point. Yeah. You, if, as long as you can curtail your eating to within an eight-hour window during the day, then the rest of the day is a 16-hour fast, and you can make that your, your nocturnal period so that you know, it, it, it doesn't hugely impact. And there are definite benefits when it comes to ageing in do it following that practice. 100%. In, in terms of the disease statuses that I, that I cited, but lovely study in, in mice showing that mice given, two, two, two groups of mice, one given a, 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 a certain amount of food over a 24-hour period and another group given the same amount of food but in an eight-hour period, the first became obese and the second did not. Mm-hmm. So same amount of food but curtailing the period of food intake. But that's not to say now you can take your eight hours and eat all sorts of rubbish. No. Because no, that's I, not I, going I, to no, work. Absolutely not. No, we're applying applying the, the, the what we've discussed already with respect to the Mediterranean diet. Professor Roseanne Kenny on her new book Age Proof from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking about his weekend. Let's face it, what a strange um, weekend that was. <laughs> I, I think I think that one of the oddest things about the weekend was how odd it all was. Does that make any sense? And, and people going, what? You can do this? You can do that? I saw handshakes being offered and hugs being handed out. And I thought, gosh, just overnight? Is that the way it works? True to my promise, um, I was... Uh, in the green room, uh, pre-chat show on uh, six, six o'clock uh, with my friends and colleagues. So I am watching uh, the Taoiseach emerge down the stairs, the steps. I'm not sure what the difference is, but either way, he came down those things. Not a, not a, not a, uh, a slip, but rather a skip in his step. Um, I mean, in fairness to him, he had the eyes dancing with excitement and you knew. Um, it was kind of the flip of Leo Varadkar's Washington speech, which was also a very good speech, but such a dark speech. And then it's like the light got switched on and you could have this more joyful, joyous speech. It was an excellent speech, I thought, uh, to, to his credit. And it was very hopeful. They, uh, the Taoiseach announced the restrictions being lifted. And over in, in one corner of the room was Eleanor, Sh- Eleanor McAvoy and Pauline Scanlon and Ash, who were going to be singing for us later on in the evening. And when he said, it's time for us to sing again and so on, they cheered. Um, and, and they cheered like, like somebody had just scored a goal in a match. I think I spent a lot of the weekend listening to people offering metaphors for what it was like. Whether it was, uh, I think, on, on, on Joe, somebody was saying uh, it was like the Northern Ireland peace process, which is a, a great uh, analysis to, uh, comparison too. And I felt there was an Italian 90 feel to it, watching the crowds out, in, out and about and, um, you know, watching people with their various reactions to it in on the, the six o'clock news then and the nine o'clock news later on in various bars, people cheering the screen. I don't think I remember the last time it, people were cheering a politician on the screen, but there you are. Uh, things have changed in this topsy-turvy world. And then the listeners had their thoughts, like this one from John. Probably too early to say how this pandemic will have affected us, says John. In years to come, the historians will tell us what happened and why, but it will be the writers who will tell us how it felt during the last two years to live as ordinary people in an extraordinary time. And it may take time before the stories can be told properly. It's hard to write about what it meant to live during a war until we're certain that peace is here to stay. 
the celebrations at the weekend were like what you'd see at the end of a war. But like anyone who comes through a war, there will, for some, be a degree of survivor guilt as we think about the ones we lost. Happily, my father died shortly before the pandemic began. And I say happily because he would have hated a small funeral. But I think of my friends who lost their parents and family members and I see their fingers pressed one last time against the windows of the nursing homes, their tears as the sealed casket is carried into an echoing empty church. And I think too of one of my friends in particular who took his own life, whose big, generous heart and soul could not bear the loneliness, the misery of isolation. And there was, amid the awfulness, the odd diamond glinting in the rough. Let's not forget the Zoom kitten screensaver addressing an American court or the priest baptising socially distant babies with a water gun. (laughs) And the human condition, writes John, is such that we will probably forget a lot of this far more quickly than we think now. In years to come, when grandchildren ask, what was it like during the time of COVID? What would we say? I wrote this little poem called When back in March 2020. And like many of us, I thought then this would all be finished in a few weeks, a couple of months maybe. And as the football commentator said, they think it's all over. It is now. Or is it? Let's hope so and let's try to remember not to forget. Um, the poem is called When. I think I'm going to read it actually. It's not too long and, and um, it's written by John. I think it's, very, it's, it's, it's a beautiful piece of writing. It, it goes like this. And when this ends, we will emerge shyly And then all at once, dazed, long-haired as we embrace loved ones, the shadows spared, and weep for those it gathered in its shroud. A kind of rapture, this longed for laying on hands, high cries as we nuzzle, leaning in to kiss, and whisper that now things will be different, although a time will come when we'll forget the curve's approaching wave, the hiss and sigh of ventilators, the crowded makeshift morgues, a time when we may even miss the old world arm's-length courtesy, Small kindnesses left on doorsteps, the drifting idle days and nights when we flung open all the windows to areas in the darkness, our voices reaching out, holding each other till this passes. That's John's poem on the Ryan Tuberty Show. Then later on Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell was talking about the buzz in Cork City Centre on Saturday night. Brian, how was it at the weekend? Uh, it was great. I mean, as, as that eight o'clock watershed passed, there was just such an amazing atmosphere. People were almost giddy with excitement. There were queues back outside late night bars, queues outside nightclubs. We're going to have to book a babysitter, I think. And uh, everything back open. It was fantastic to see it. I mean, I started in one of the best known and more traditional bars in Cork City Centre, the Castle Inn. And at one minute past eight, Claire, owner Michael O'Donovan poured his first post-restriction pint and he had a chat with me. Stuff's coming up now to eight o'clock and this time yesterday we would have been... You'd be hunting us out. We'd be hunting you out where tonight it's look fairly busy. You can hear the noise in the background. We haven't heard this noise since the second week of March 2020. So um, and like here now tonight, everybody's just mingling, talking, rubbing shoulders. And like this is what Ireland is about. How does it feel to serve beyond 8pm? It's natural. You know, we're here to entertain people, to make sure people have a good time. You know, there's no rush like there's been the last couple of weeks. Everybody's, you know, drinking but enjoying themselves. You know, when it was eight o'clock, there was a, you know, mass rush to get them out and, you know, people are enjoying themselves. People have smiles on their faces. We haven't seen a staff with smiles on their faces today. You know, it's just much, much better. And obviously the economic viability is there now. Oh, yeah, look for the last 22 months like we were operating on trying to break even trying to survive look tonight we've tapped more kegs today than we've done 
you know I'd say in the last six weeks alone so like it's it's just it just makes it so much better and look nobody here tonight knows if somebody's vaccinated or not but I think we're to a point that we have to start moving on you know it's what an Irish pub is about it's what our pubs are about is entertaining people and and that they come back again. Like, I parked my car here in the city today at lunchtime. We opened just after lunch, and, you know, there's a buzz in the city today. I haven't experienced that walking the street, you know, in two years. It's just brilliant to see it back. Tapping the kegs, Michael O'Donovan at the weekend. And you're out and about in the city also, Brian, and you chatted to plenty of others. And everybody was saying the same thing to me. Drinking at home, house parties, okay for a while, but they all miss that spontaneity of pubs. They miss sitting or standing at a bar. It was strange to walk in, I have to say, and to see it all looking so, you know, normal, I suppose. It was the same all over the city Saturday night. Someone said it was like Italian 90 and New Year's Eve rolled into one. (laughs) (laughs) You had queues back outside, as I said, the nightclubs. And also, interestingly, the outdoor drinking and eating, it would seem is here to stay. I mean, even with indoors back to full capacity, um, I could see quite a lot of people still choosing to stay outdoors. Now, I mentioned nightclubs earlier and I met these four young women who were at the side of a very long nightclub queue. People our age have probably bear the brunt of a lot of what's gone on. So you're in your 20s? Yeah. yeah. For your generation, you lost out probably on travelling abroad. That connection in college, the social life. Yeah, I missed out in about two years of college. Don't tell me you're joining this queue for the nightclub behind us, which is about 100, <laughs> 200 people long. No, we're hopefully going to pull some strings with some <laughs> yeah. people. Oh, people of influence, go on. We have years, years on these people in the queue, you know. Oh, we, you're veterans. We were... Why did you feel like coming back to a nightclub tonight? Just for the atmosphere, just to be around people and just to kind of make the most of having a bunch of people in one space we haven't had obviously for a long time Do you, do you feel safe going out tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. definitely I feel like the new variant is a lot you know you don't get as sick with it so talking to it's them closer It's just about making smarter yeah. choices a habit with regards to keeping clean and like all these things that they've been kind of pushing down our throat for such a long time we're just trying to make Listen, make that don't routine. all those habits go out the window once you go into that yeah. nightclub? In there, like, yeah. 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 Well, I suppose they do in a sense that you're so cooped up next to a bunch of people, but they're still the same principles. Like, when we go to the toilet, we will be washing our hands, we will be doing that. Like, I won't be going over to strangers, taking a sip of their drink or any of those other things. Like, it's something that just kind of keeps in the back of your mind that you are still I'd conscious love to of see it. i in about five hours. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Brian O'Connell's report from today with Claire Byrne. And it was that time of the week for Ryan Tuberty to go dancing. All right, uh, Kathy Kelly, does that uh, music inspire joy or fear or sadness or... Oh, do you know what? Joy, it'll always be joy. I mean, beautiful Maurizio Beninato, who was here with me today, he has taught me how to actually do the quick step as well, which yes. we, we weren't getting around to doing. Um, the tango, the cha-cha-cha. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm doing my Italian You're doing accent. Italian for every dance. I'm doing Italian for every dance. That's it's okay. fantastic. So look, it was just... Amazing. Welcome. Welcome, uh, first and foremost, Cathy Kelly and Maurizio Beninato. Welcome as well. And uh, your first time on Dancing with the Stars? Yeah, hello. I had uh, really a lot of fun. First time, first season. Everything was very good. First time, first season, first out. Yeah, well, I, I like to be first. Yeah. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was, when I was competing, well, but this was mm, not no, so no, long. Okay, <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, I mean, look, I'm being, I'll be, I'll be. St- what, what part of Italy are you from? Uh, I'm from Napoli. Napoli. Oh, well, I must talk to you about Napoli. Yeah. Okay, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, been there a few times, so we'll talk in a moment about that. I'm surprised to see you both here this morning because I've, I've been watching it every week. I know it's week three, um, and. 
Are you as surprised as I am to be to, to be here I today? I thought I had a little bit more in me, but you know, like it's live TV. I yeah. mean, I once did a TV show where someone came on and did an impersonation of a chicken, Michael Barrymore, and oh, had yeah. to be nearly hit. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen, yes. really. You yes. just, once you go into it, you're going, look, could be me. And I did say all along, part of me was saying, do you know what, if someone has to go home first, it's probably be better to be me than to be some really young, innocent person who will be destroyed. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah, so, yeah. like, you've got okay, to that's very gracious, gracious of you. And uh, But you, you, I thought, look, I'm not a dancer, but, I, but what I saw of you dancing was very impressive. And I'm not yeah. plumossing. I really thought yeah. you, were, you were excellent. And Maurizio, how was Cathy as a dance partner? I have to be honest, uh, Really, really good. And for the amount of step I put in the choreo, uh, she did really a great job. Okay. I'm not complaining on the other couple, of course, but she really, <laughs> she really did a really good. good. Okay, okay. Um, Kathy, let me ask you why, why Dancing with the Stars and why you said yes and why you wanted to em- embrace it. You know, because that's a very good question because there's loads of stuff. I've been asked to do billions of things over mm. the years and I don't do them and because uh, I'm quite low key. But I just love dancing and I thought it would be great fun to do it. And actually, it was fabulous. We had the tango so early on because I've always wanted to learn the tango. Yes. I'd like to do the Argentine tango, but now, now having done a smidge of that in the in the choreo, I, yeah, I yeah. can see how tricky that is. But it was just so joyous yeah. and wonderful and beautiful team and you know, all the different contestants. It's it's a fabulous show. It's like a lovely fairy tale. It's what we needed, actually, because it's, it's, it's that lovely, as I always say, a splash of colour on a Sunday night, just when you think, ah, that's nice. More sequins, more glitter, sequins. more fake tan. Oh, my God, there was this beautiful dress. I was playing in, in the costume department and they had this amazing dress and it was, you know, sort of leopard print with um, pink flamingo uh, bits around it. So you look like a wild flamingo. Oh, my God, I just tried it on. I said, can I try this on? Yeah. So I'm I'm very upset I won't get to wear that, but I, I don't think they'd have let me wear it anyway. Did they let you try it on? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh well, that's my... OK. Well, at least you had to go make I up and know, make and do. Fabulous. She oh, always wanted to change for the tango, that one, you know. Is that <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw it, yeah. Uh, who do you uh, who do you fancy for the for the win at this point? You're allowed to say it now that you're gone. Maurizio, who do you think is doing well? Uh, well, the celebrities? I, I think, not just because he's my friend, but I think Pasquale and Nina really... Nina Carver, are, she did yeah. well last night. Isn't she she did really a great job on the rumba. Rumba is one of the most really difficult uh, yeah. dance because it's really slow. You have to fool the like the music, the time, and she really did a great job. She and gives Pasquale, herself, yeah, Pasquale, of course, Pasquale is a great dancer. He, he won with Lottie yeah, yeah. last Lottie. year, and well done yeah. to Lottie, by the way, for well, yeah. stepping oh, she was in. So, so good. yeah, 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 that was a big ask, and yeah. well done to her for that. Um, but uh, Nina. She gives herself a hard time. I know, because, you know, it was so funny. She was saying, I don't see myself as a sexy yeah. person. And then Maurizio said, she's so sexy. Hey, and yeah, and, yeah, and, I, was, and was. I told her. She I, was. I, yeah, and I said, look, you know, you, you've got to own this, you know. And I think it's women are really hard on themselves. And really? I said, you own this. You're beautiful. You're incredibly sexy. You were so good at that. She's yeah. totally amazing. But there, there's just so many other amazing people. I yeah. mean, Eric and Missy and Gronja. Look, yeah, Angus, there were so many people. I always feel when I, when I, when I meet the... Um, uh, the dancers, uh, the celebrities, uh, after especially at the end of the whole thing, that it's like you sent a bunch of kids to Irish college, <laughs> and they all became great friends. Yes, and they're all going to meet outside McDonald's and Grafton Street in September. Yeah. Uh, but there is a there's a camaraderie, uh, a, oh, a kinship that's formed. There's a total kinship. We're all mm. going around, you know, talking to people. It was like. Yeah. Um, you know, a beautiful Karen was going up to groin and saying, "Now, you know, and wiggle the dress more." You know, yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. is 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 yeah. is helping everyone else. So it's and good. It's, it's beautiful. Kathy Kelly and Maurizio Beninato from the Ryan Tuberty Show. 
and it was the last of three programmes in the Crimes and Confessions series on RTE TV. Mick Pila was talking to Claire Byrne about the third episode, which focuses on the Kerry baby story. So this is the culmination of the three events linked by the teams of Gardaí who investigated all of these incidents and the Kerry Babies case. I would say it's one of the most high profile unsolved cases in this uh, country. But for those who don't remember the exact details, will you go back and give us just a little bit of background to all of this? OK, it's just it's 1984 Um which is well over 30 years ago, um, a baby was washed up on a, a strand called White Strand just outside Carsevine and the post-mortem revealed that the baby had been stabbed 28 times. It was only a few weeks, if it was two weeks old, I think, around that time. And um, so the murder squad comes from Dublin uh, to investigate the murder, six detectives from the murder squad, and they quickly zone in on this young woman who uh, was supposedly given, had a miscarriage and was in Tralee General Hospital with a supposed miscarriage. But she, um, the doctors were saying she went full term and there was no sign of any baby. So they focus on this woman, Joanne mm-hmm. Hayes. 80 kilometres away from where the baby was found. 80 kilometres away from where the baby was found. So they, uh, they basically raid the Hayes family. Uh, and they bring them all into Tralee Garda Station. There's five members of the Hayes family. There's an aunt, there's three bro- two brothers, a sister, Joanne Hayes, and her mother. And they bring most of them into the into Tralee Garda Station individually and interrogate them all individually. Uh, and um, Joanne Hayes, uh, who worked in the local sports club, basically was got visited by two Gardaí that morning, um, we want to, will you come down to the Garda station for, for inquiries? Now, John Hayes thought, OK, they found my baby. Uh, you know, she had had a child. She'd had a child. And so when she got to the station, she told the two detectives, there were two interrogators, they were assigned to her. And they were, you know, they were the guys who were with her for about 12 hours. She told them straight up five, six times how she gave birth outside on the farm to a baby. Uh, she, the baby stopped crying. She panicked. She put the baby beside the hay. It was in the middle of the night. It was early morning, but at one o'clock in the morning, she basically got into the house, secretly went back to bed, got up fairly early in the next morning and hid the baby on the land. It was dead. Um, she went to work. Uh, two weeks later, she went to work. And, that, and, and this is the story she kept telling the Gardaí. But mm. of course, they didn't believe her. They they basically felt uh, she's not telling the full truth. And so the, um, what, what, what happened then after that is that, like in all these cases that I've looked at over the, the, the three episodes, after a period of time when you've been told now again and again and again, it's, it's a breaking point, she basically does confess to killing the baby that was found on White Strand which wasn't her baby. She confesses to stabbing that baby. Yeah, and we have a clip of her speaking in 1984 and here she is talking about why she confessed to that crime that she didn't commit. While I signed my statement was because they told me they were going to bring mum in charge with murder as well and put my little girl into an orphanage. And just said they were going to sell the farm then as well. They came in, they took my statement that they had read out and um, I put in little bits and pieces on my own as well. On the way back to the bedroom, I picked up the white bath brush and I went to the cabinet in the kitchen and picked up the carving knife with the brown timber handle. The baby cried when I hit it and I stabbed it with the carving knife on the chest and all over the body. I turned the baby over and I also stabbed him in the back. 
The baby stopped crying after I stabbed it. There was blood everywhere on the bed, and there was also blood on the floor. We were treated very badly by them. The harassment and the insults were just something else. We were guilty, like, according to them, when we were being taken in, you know? Even though we told them the truth at the time. And as Claire points out, that confession was not what happened. Now, that distressing description of the baby's death, that didn't happen. Joanne didn't do that. And it no. was discovered pretty quickly because her own baby was found on the on the farm. Yes, she was fundamentally, she, she was charged with murder, for killing the baby, and the family were being charged for concealing a baby. Uh, they were charged for concealment of birth. And then Joanne, just before she was being sent to Limerick Jail, basically got word to her sister very quickly and said, look it, I've told them where the, where the baby is, but they haven't found it or they haven't really looked for it. I don't know. She said, this is where the baby is. Kathleen, who is the last voice you heard there, went out to the farm with her brother, found exactly where the baby was. The guardy got the baby. Uh, Post-mortem results reveal that baby has the same blood group as Joanne. It is her baby. The other baby didn't have it. So it was very unlikely that the other baby that she apparently confessed to killing was not her baby. But they still persisted and they tried to put forward this theory of super fecundation, which is that she was the mother of both babies fathered by different men. Yeah. Now that is bizarre. I mean, I'm not a... A gynecologist or a... I have no idea what that... I do know now what that is. It's basically saying a woman who has... produces two eggs uh, that month, um, that two... she has sex with two men very, at very closely... very close mm-hmm. to... And gives time, birth to twins. And gives birth to twins from the two different. different fathers. And then there was another theory that, that there was a third baby. Yeah, well, you see, the problem was uh, with that theory, the, the super fecundation theory, the guards couldn't get anyone to corroborate that. A, yeah. a, a super a, a witness, a basically an expert, expert witness. witness. They couldn't get anybody. So they went, well, they have to explain how she confessed to murdering a baby. So they basically come up with a third baby. She gave birth to a baby inside the house, the one she, you just heard her confessing to. She stabbed that baby in the house and... And um, they disposed of the baby in the sea, the two brothers. And that's the theory they came up with, okay. the third baby. In the middle of all this, and it was mentioned in the in the documentary, I think, by Vicky Conway, like, you have a woman here who is distressed having lost her child and is having to go through all of this as well. And, of course, that was lost in, in, in everything, wasn't yeah. it, at the time? And that's why I think the country went up in arms at the time. Uh, also, this young woman who is distressed, distraught, ends up at a tribunal of inquiry and she's basically grilled about her sex life, mm-hmm. her, her private sex life. Uh, are like, you know, it's, it's appalling by a yeah, group so, of men. And the tribunal happened because no charges could be could be pursued because of what we've just discussed. And so the tribunal was set up to to inquire into the behaviour of the Gardaí. Yeah. But what actually happened, and if anyone has the time to go back and read Nell's book at the time, uh, yeah. Nell McCaffrey's book, it's a short book, but it's so shocking. Joanne was grilled, as you say. She was unwell. She was unable to answer some of the questions. She had to be sedated during the questioning and brought back in and questioned about what she thought this relationship was going to lead to, uh, whether she'd had other partners in the past. It was beyond outrageous. Which was absolutely outrageous because the theory that they had come up with, the super fecundation theory, was dismissed by them, the guards, was dismissed by by the DPP uh, and and yet this theory was pursued by counsel for the Gardaí at the tribunal for days, 
even though it was it was ruled out. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were basically putting her on trial. And that's what Joanne believed. Uh, and, and the extraordinary thing about it, I mean, there was one, one intervention in the tribunal. I was absolutely shocked. It was day nine of the tribunal. Um, she, she got so upset, she could hardly speak. Uh, and, they, and she was asking, her counsel was saying, can, could, could she have a break, judge? Well, if we keep breaking now, we'll have, be breaking every five minutes, he says. And he wouldn't break. And literally, she broke eventually. And so they had to sedate her. They called the doctor up after the, while she was sedated, called for a lunch break. And the doctor then said, you know, after lunch, can she give, uh, will she be able to give testimony? And the doctor says, well, I don't think she's, she's, she's capable of doing it. Well, can you come back after lunch and just uh, and let us know how she is? He comes back and he says, the judge says, do you think she'll be able to? I think she might, yes. Mm-hmm. You and, know. The, and on they went. And on they went again. <laughs> Relentless. And Claire asked Mick about Joanne's interrogation. Uh, you uh, explored the background to this, going back to the interrogation and the retired detective inspector, Jerry O'Carroll, he features extensive in, in this uh, episode, he denies any wrongdoing, although f- he probably for the first time admits that interrogation practices were sometimes hostile. We'll have a listen to him here, uh, Jerry O'Carroll, explaining why possibly some people may confess while under interrogation. People confess, I'm not saying it happened in this case, to crimes they didn't commit. Guilt feelings, I don't know. Of course, the interrogation can is hostile, hostile questioning. Hostile. Aggressive. Of course. I have no problem with that. Raising voices, shouting, banging tables. Well, shouting. That could certainly... Bang it could involve... Oh, yeah, maybe banging a table. Yeah, of course. You gave evidence in court, as PJ Brown gave evidence in court, that that never happened. Where? In the Kerry Babies case. I never... Didn't I tell you everyone is different? Jesus Christ, you're not going to be shouting at a little girl and banging tables for Joanne Hayes, for God's sake. Joanne Hayes, you said you stood by as, as PJ Brown slapped her twice across the face. Nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Joanne Hayes and I got on like house and fire. I was nice to that girl. I couldn't believe it. I'm just going back and thinking about what Joanne said earlier in the clip about the threats. Now, she didn't attribute this to Jerry O'Carroll, but the threat to take her child away and to sell the farm. And that's what led to her breaking and, and signing. So we were talking about the tribunal there, the outcome of the tribunal. What happened? Extraordinary it was in the sense that, uh, again, the outcome basically vindicated the Gardaí and called the Hayes family and Joanne Hayes liars. And that existed on the record for how long? Right up till 2020, uh, up to last two years ago, December, almost, it's only a year ago, really. Mm-hmm. When the Hayes family got their apology. And the, tri- the findings of that tribunal were overturned and they got a Garden State apology. Um, and I, I, in, in a way, that's vindication for them. But fundamentally, uh, what, we're, what, what, what I suppose what we're doing in terms of our series is saying, OK, compensation apologies, overturning of tribunals. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. Uh, but the Kerrigans got no apology. The Donnellys got no apology. The Salins Four got no apology from the state and Gardaí. And what they want really is justice. Mick Pilo speaking about his series, Crimes and Confessions, from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, Russian missile testing was on the mind of marine biologist Dr Sean O'Callaghan when he called Joe in the afternoon. 
Um, today looks like it's a very critical day. The Polish Air Force have put up uh, fighter jets over Warsaw because they're worried about Russia as well because Vladimir Putin recently blamed Poland for starting uh, the Second World War. And also, as you probably know, Poland is pivotal. It's got the biggest army out there as well, besides Russia, obviously. Um, but Poland is pivotal in encouraging the likes of Ukraine uh, and other countries, not just to join NATO, but to... Um, you know, Ukraine isn't in NATO, but to jo- not just to join NATO, but to join the EU. So they're seeing uh, that situation. And as anyone who looked up Vox Pops on the streets of uh, Kiev, um, the, the Ukrainian people... Uh, vast majority of them are saying, one, they don't want anything to do with Russia. Well, they fought. Was it 30, 1990, this weekend, 1990, 400,000 people joined hands in Ukraine against the Russian uh, occupation, as they called it, of Ukraine. Now, as you know, the wall fell, it was falling around that time, and the Russians were gone shortly thereafter. So I don't think they're uh, going to sit back, unfortunately, from their own point of view, against the might of the... Uh, the Russian army. Okay, and then the Russians announced uh, that they are uh, having a, a naval exercise, a massive naval uh, exercise, uh, closer to Kerry than Kinsale is to Dublin uh, in two weeks' time. 240k off the Kerry coast, a major uh, naval. Now, of course, it's not an Irish territorial water to be a be a major outcry though we haven't much hope against Russia we're not members of NATO with no backup so to speak um, but they, they are clo- it'll be closer to uh, Kerry as I say the landmass of Ireland than Kinsale is to Dublin that's how close it is and it's in a space airspace obviously that we control because of our Shannon and then the walk our air traffic control over that part of the world and we're going to, planes are going to have to be d- diverted. Now, we're contacted by Sean O'Callan, who's a marine biologist. Sean, good afternoon. Hi, Joe. An, an angle on this, I don't think anyone has thought of on this Russian... They will be firing live missiles, testing. It's, a, it's a, an exercise, as they call it. What's your concern? Yeah, exactly, Joe. It's, uh, this is uh, quite different to the, to the usual take... Um, as a marine biologist, I'm quite concerned about the effect of the noise and the impact of these potential explosions, uh, what they might have on uh, marine mammals, so whales mm-hmm. and dolphins out offshore in our, our waters. Um, the area that the, they're planning on uh, undertaking these exercises is a, a place where we have quite a few uh, sensitive and quite cryptic uh, deep diving species. Okay. So, it's military exercises are, are a known cause of um, uh, stressing these animals out and impacting them severely. So, in other parts of the world, it's it's been linked with uh, huge uh, beachings or strandings of, of whales, whether mm-hmm. they're alive or dead, because they come up too quick from uh, from that depth, and it it impacts the animal's hearing. It can cause their equivalent of the bends. And it, it, it has the potential to be a, a huge conservation and welfare issue for our offshore whale populations. So you think if if the Russians got which they will, no, nothing's going to stop the Russians. They're not going to they're not going to heed what Ireland has to say. Um, but uh, the, if the when the Russians go ahead with this, you're saying uh, mammals, whales will will dead whales will wash up on Irish shores. 
yeah, it's 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 a sort of surreal uh, situation to be in. Um, it, it seems well, it, it's pretty much a guarantee if they go ahead with this huge mm-hmm. um, exercise using explosives. They may well use the likes of uh, active sonar, which is often used in these uh, exercises, but this is just speculation on my part. And what is active um, sonar, Sean, for those of us who don't study yes. these? What is active sonar? So sonar is like uh, like we'd see in the films where where, uh, where submarines are being searched for by ah, uh, ships, yeah, where okay. submarines are actively looking out for other submarines, so... So it's, depth, it's a tool that's very used. Depth charges, like depth, what would they call it in the Second World War? Depth charge, they would drop explosives to the bottom of the sea in, to rehearse or to practice trying to eliminate uh, enemy submarines. That, that was um, sort of the norm in, say, the likes of the Second World War, where, yeah. say, a U-boat could be near the surface, but uh, the technology is there now where we can use sound to penetrate into the... To, the water column to look for submarines, ah. and it, it's something. It's much more high tech. Yeah. But the the impact of this extremely loud noise. Yeah. Can you uh, can you imagine? It, it, it affects these animals uh, severely. Dr. Sean O'Callaghan there. Then later, Aidy Roach. Aidy Roach is probably uh, is one of the best known uh, Irish people in terms of our contact with the Ukraine because of Chernobyl, which is in Ukraine, and what happens there if the Russians invade. Aidy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joel. I'm delighted to talk to you. And fair due to you for picking up the story and about the human impact potentially of of any conflict in that region. Um, And I actually just, I hadn't known about the Pope's call for the day Mm. of prayer, but I actually think that's a lovely gesture, I suppose, of solidarity, because a lot of the time, ordinary people like us, we feel powerless. There's nothing we can do. And we're kind of, you know, we're sort of Mm. on the sideline. Now, I've worked in this area for almost 36 years, both in Russia, the three countries you've named, Joe, Russia, Belarus and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And what I can say is, first of all, we're talking about beautiful people, people who have an extraordinary history and have a great respect for the peoples of the three regions. And like Ukraine has suffered so much in the past through history, through famines, through colonisation. And then they suffered in 1986 because of Chernobyl. And then they suffered again in 2014 with the invasion into eastern Ukraine. And actually, that's where we are based with our uh, with some of our cardiac work. And I went to that region right after the conflict in 2014. So I've seen it myself, the refugees, the impact on communities. And all I can say, Joe, is... We have to avoid war at all costs. It is unconscionable to even consider a conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think Ireland has a crucial role to play, actually, as a neutral, non-aligned country. Mm -hmm. And now that we've a seat on the Security Council under the wonderful leadership of our Ambassador Geraldine Nathan-Burn, we could have a huge impact in pulling this back. But the problem with the Security Council, as you know, is that Russia has a veto. I, I, I know, but at the same, Joe, I swear to God... And they God, veto everything. No, that doesn't Joe, suit we, we, we still have to work on dialogue, dialogue, diplomacy. Mm. And, like, in a sense, it, that's why our organisation is still in Ukraine, despite, okay. you know, the, the, the conflict there at the moment. And we had to take a calculated risk just last week mm-hmm. to bring forward... Um, 
by six months actually a planned cardiac surgical mission like many of your listeners yeah. and listeners may have seen on RT News Christmas week when we got a cardiac mission in which saved the lives of dozens of children because what's at stake here Joe it's not I'm not about the politics here it's that there are innocent children's okay. lives at yeah. stake and it's a shame when politics once again negatively impacts on the care of ordinary people. And it is the people that in every war that has ever happened, yeah. it's the people end up paying the price. A.D. Roach from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on Today with Claire Byrne, things got nuclear with Professor Shane Bergen when he broke down atomic energy. As climate change pushes us to dramatically cut the use of fossil fuels, many are coming to the conclusion that solar, wind and other renewable power sources might not be enough to keep the lights on. And nuclear power is being touted by some as a possible answer to fill the gap as states transition away from coal, oil and natural gas. But the question is, what is nuclear energy and how does it work exactly? Well, here to tell us more is Dr Shane Bergen from the UCD School of Education. Good morning Shane. Good morning. So we want you to answer the basic questions for us about this. What is nuclear energy? Um, yeah, nuclear energy is, uh, is when you tap into the very heart of an atom and you start to rip it apart or fiddle with it in such a way that you un- unleash the most powerful forces in, in the universe. Uh, there's nothing that compares to it in terms of its, its oomph. Um, and there is a lot of big questions that we have to ask around its use, its safe use and alternatives to it. But starting at the very begin- the beginning, um, it was long thought that the atom was completely indivisible. Now, you and me and everything around us is made up from, uh, from atoms. And it was thought since the Greek times that you just couldn't break that down. You couldn't at all. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, scientists started to, to notice that you could... And, and this was groundbreaking to think that something that was completely indivisible up to that point was divisible. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they were able to do was they were able to strip away the charges that, that uh, sort of these clouds that go around the, the centre of the atom. And uh, that was the first sort of unbalancing. But the next big leap came when they, they found that they could get to the very heart of the atom where all the matter is. This is the very centre of it, something called the nucleus, and that it itself could be broken. And that was first done by an Irish person uh, working with an English person, a guy called Walton. Uh, uh, you, you may have heard of him. Your listeners may have heard of him. And he, in 1932, was the first person to artificially split a nucleus. He took something called lithium, which is an element, and he, he, he fired uh, little particles at it. And he was able to split it into two different elements. He was able to take lithium and split it into uh, helium two bits of helium. Now, that was the first time anyone had ever done that. It was absolutely groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. It was the first experimental evidence of Einstein's equation E equals MC squared, a very famous equation. So that was all done by an Irish person almost 100 years and ago. And when this happened in 1932, was the realisation there then that you're unleashing a huge amount of energy in doing this? Yes, yeah, so they, they knew that once the, the, uh, like that the atom was divisible, that if you were able to crack open the nucleus, that you would be disrupting the strongest bonds in nature. And when you disrupt those strong bonds, you un- unleash an enormous amount of energy. So much so that some of the matter, some of the actual stuff of the atom is converted into pure energy. And that's what the equation E equals MC squared describes. It says you can take matter and in certain circumstances, you can turn that into pure energy. 
and the sm- a small amount of matter can be turned into an enormous amount of energy. So if you split uh, tiny amounts of, of certain uh, elements, certain atoms, you can turn that into power. That's what our sun is doing, actually. Mm-hmm. That's how our sun works. Um, so they knew back in 1932 that this was possible. And of course, we all know what happened at the end of the 1930s. Uh, we went to war. And um, there, there's a great story that's out there around the Allies and the Axis powers knowing that a bomb could be made from, from this, uh, this process, but not knowing how far on the other people were. So the Allies had no idea how far ahead the, uh, the Germans were and vice versa. You mix into it issues of things like religion. There was an awful lot of the physicists in the early 20th century who were Jewish people who were, were, were making massive leaps forward in, in Germany. But of course, they weren't welcome in the institutes that they, they were working. Refugees were scattered around the world. Scientists uh, were, were coming to places um, that were far from home and they were bringing their knowledge with them. And uh, Einstein famously wrote a letter to President Roosevelt uh, in, the, in the 1930s saying, look, this, this is possible. You could do something here. If you, if you could develop a weapon using this technology, you could end the war um, and end it a lot sooner. And so uh, that's what happened. And the Manhattan Project was the result. Professor Shane Bergen from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking to journalist Anya Ryan about emerging from the cocoon, her father's death and mistakes that are set in stone. Here's one girl who hasn't fully liberated myself. So um, I, I'm not ready for the melee of pub life, but I'm sure there was a lot of excitement around Westport yeah. and Castlebar and Belna. No doubt, in between winning lotteries and getting restrictions yes. lifted, it's all going on there. And you're, when you say you're not ready, are you... Are you just taking it easy? Are you just taking it at your own pace? Yes, I just yeah. feel, I just feel, frankly, if I may put it colourfully, just because the government has suddenly said we can fly doesn't mean I'm just going to jump off a cliff. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that answer, but I think that you are reflecting a whole swathe of, of, the, of the country who feel exactly like that. They're going, OK, the, the pool is there, the doors are open, but I don't necessarily want to get in. No, I, I think we've been retrained and I think yes. a lot of it is very positive. And um, I think we'll, a lot of us, even, you know, I've daughters and my youngest who lives down in Cork uh, City, yeah. you know, she was, when, when the news came, she said, so what are we meant to do now? You know, and, and even that age group, are, some of them are quite tentative. Yes, yeah. And I, I find in families too, you, you might have, if it's, you know, two kids or four kids, it doesn't really matter, but you might have one or two of them are going, I can't, I can't wait to go out. Didn't really stay in anyway. And then maybe the other might be going, um, I, I kind of quite enjoyed the, the toning down and I'm not in a rush out. Yeah, well, I mean, the the bottom line is just because restrictions have changed, uh, the pandemic isn't quite over. Yeah, yeah. There's a comedian. Um, it was on TikTok over the weekend, and it's 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 him speaking at a regular voice into a massive crowd sound effect, saying, um, "I'm Neffet, and uh, I wish just to let you know it's still happening. You can't really hear him because the noise." Yeah. <laughs> and, he's yeah. To, he's, and his point was, this is what it must be like, feel like to be Neffet. Not yeah. Because of the, yeah. the, it's the clinking. Well, of there, the glasses, I, I suppose, yeah. ne- you know, no matter what, there are all sorts of other factors yeah. involved now, you know, uh, from economies to, yes. you know, socialising and mental health and all that. Oh, yeah. But we'll wait and see. It we'll is very positive. Um, and the, spring is around the corner. That's the way to see it. I agree with you. And and that's not why you're, you're here with us this morning. 
um, I, I, I kind of need you to tell me a little bit about your father, if you don't mind, George, George Ryan. Yeah, well, George was quite a character. He, um, he wrote some books in the 1970s, one of which was called No Time for Work. Mm-hmm. And it was a bestseller for a long time. And of course, George went around, he was a bridge correspondent for the Irish Times for 44 years, which gave him a perfect... Um, forum for forcing people into buying his very, very funny book in that he'd land... I remember being on a train with him once Mm. and he went up and down the train carriage uh, just to strangers and uh, it was on the way to a Bridge Congress, actually. Mm. And... um, you know, he'd stop and say, just read this page. And he'd embarrass people, really, into buying the book. But um, it was very funny. Um, He was quite a character. Towards the end, um, he got uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, He lost his short-term memory. Mm. Would repeat himself an awful lot. And he happened to be living on his own in Dublin. Um, His second wife was ill in hospital. And life became quite um, difficult for him but most of the time he was quite oblivious it was um, his family members who were trying to manage it Okay okay and um, he passed away in April 2020 he passed away in April 2020 and um, I, I write a, a regular uh, column for the Irish Times. Uh, I wrote a series called Daddy Dementia and Me um, right up until his death, exploring, uh, exploring you know, ageing in a humorous, ironic and I suppose sensitive way mm. uh, because that's how George saw the world. He was a bold boy right until the end, you know. A rogue. Uh, he was a rogue. You know, sometimes I used to think of him as a kind of an Irish version. Uh, the look of... You know, remember the, the American detective Columbo? He had that kind <laughs> Peter of Falk, look about yeah. him. Yeah. And, well, what is a rogue? I mean, you, you hear that word used a bit around here, around the place in Ireland particularly. What, how would well, you define it? Well, George... George had that twinkle in his eye, you know, until until the very end, and was rebellious, and but was also very lovable. And we'll say, well, he was expelled from his first nursing home in Dublin within two weeks. <laughs> you can be expelled from a nursing home. He was expelled from his first nursing home no. for quote, for quoting the um, on, on th- the the first Constitution of 1916, saying that he, you know, and say, saying that he had rights and using very, very colourful language, which I can't use on the national uh, airwaves, um, saying that he had every right, if he wanted to go out and have a smoke, it was his right. And also that he hadn't supported the Irish economy for all those years by smoking 40 major a day um, not to be allowed to have his freedom to leave. And he actually memorised the code into the nursing home and did escape a few times. And Anya is looking at the image of ageing itself. I'm writing a new, uh, you know, um, um, a series that now that kind of is exploring how we we really uh, the media in particular kind of has, uh, um, I suppose caricatures old age mm. in many ways as just wrinkly hands and uh, feet slippers with lots of dandruff on them. But just because you're old doesn't mean you've lost your personality or the colour or your verb for living. Yeah. Tell me about the headstone, Anya. What happened? 
Well, what happened with the headstone was that, uh, as I said, as uh, as you said earlier, George died in April in, um, 2020, and we, you know, the, the pandemic struck, time froze. We all encased ourselves in sm- within small perimeters, and uh, I'm not sure. But um, a year later, we decided to, that it was time to put, to put up the headstone, and we ordered it, and there was various toing and froing, and. And I signed off on 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 the dates and everything. Um, we'll say um, just a, before Christmas, about a month before this Christmas. Mm. And I double checked it. I worked as a proofreader. I'm a journalist. I prided myself on being very vigilant uh, of small errors. Uh, I showed it to members of my family. Uh, the drawing of it all. In fact. Uh, not only did we show it, it was installed. And about a week after it was installed, my brother rang me and said, Anya, the wrong year is on the headstone. Um, he, you, we've pushed, uh, you know, you've you've signed off on, uh, on it uh, that he died in April 2021. And I just feel for so many people, and I, I'm f- still feeling it, time froze for the last two years. Yeah, yeah. And... I think I'm not the only one who became confused about the passing of time. Oh no, you 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 share that with with the with the, all your fellow citizens. I can tell you. I mean, only the other day I mentioned on the program. It's it's fill in twenty fourth of January twenty twenty or something like that or twenty twenty one. It's inca- it's 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 encapsulated by your, that headstone. It is encapsulated by that headstone, and the wonderful monumental sculptors here in Westport are going to fix it. Okay. But I just think I. I, I just think it's it is time we thought about time and about not sweating the silly mad stuff that we have been sweating over the last few years, and that little error uh, certainly brought that home to me. And I know that my father would feel very strongly, as I wrote in my Irish Times columns. He he he'd just be saying like. What does it matter? Even though he was very vigilant as a as a writer yes. himself. On your Ryan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.